may wonder why. Why are we picking 2 Corinthians? Why go into this book? What is it about 2 Corinthians that, that makes it something we would pick for a sermon series? Well, we as a church are committed to the, making the bread and butter of our sermon series just going through books of the Bible because they're books of God's Word. This is God's very Word to us. And so we want to, the very best thing we can do is to, to help convey what He says. And so we're committed to going through, through the whole book of the Bible, the different books, individual books of the Bible. So that's reason enough. It's in the Bible. It's also a uh, one of the, the biggest books in the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's like number eight or nine, I think, in length of all the New Testament books. Uh, so it's a significant book. There's 13 chapters. There's 4,000, 4,500 words or so in this chapter. So it's a pretty big book. And, and it's just for those reasons alone. But there are other reasons as well. The, the, the contents of this wonderful letter are unique. And we believe, I believe, that this is going to help us to understand truth. Um, let me just ask you a couple of questions that maybe get you thinking in, in line with the themes of this book. Have you ever felt like a bad Christian? And what I mean is not the sort of Christian like, you know, you're just totally, totally faking it and you're doing things that no one knows about that are terrible, all that. I, I mean, you just like, you're kind of doing okay, but you just feel like a bad Christian. And maybe that's because, you know, I just don't always have a lot of faith. Um, I don't always feel the joy I ought to feel. Um, I look at the good Christians, you know, and they're just amazing. They're just full of faith, and it's always the greatest thing, the latest and greatest thing that God's going to do. And, and for me, it's a struggle. And I kind of feel like a, a second-class Christian here. Well, we have all these first-class Christians out there. Have you ever felt that way? Well, Second Corinthians is a book that will help you, and I, b- I believe bring life-changing answers to you in that place. And by the way, I think we've all felt that way. Another thing, maybe, have you ever felt like, if you're a leader, like, I'm just not a very good leader. I just don't have the charisma to really, you know, lead people, get them to follow. I'm not the take-the-hill sort of leader. And I, like, I, I want to help people, but I'm not that effective. What should I do? Should I just kind of let that, you know, other person who has all that charisma lead? What should I do? Or maybe, on the other side of that, you look at leaders and you think, we need leaders like that. You know, we, we have these pastors, they're good guys, but boy, they're not, they're not that charismatic. We need, if we can just get a charismatic leader who's just full of energy and lead us onward into the, the kingdom of God work, that's what we need. Well, wherever you might be in that, if you, if you identify with that, I think Second Corinthians has a radical perspective for you that's very different than that. And that's what we're going to look at. Uh, so we're going to look at this, this wonderful letter. We're going to learn truths that relate to those sorts of questions and others. This letter was, was written uh, by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And it was written because that church at the time, in particular around his ministry, they, they did not understand how weakness functions in the Christian life. And essentially they had no room for weakness and suffering as part of Christianity. They had no room for the common struggles that come with living in a fallen world with a fallen nature and, a, and an imperfect church. And so they had no functional doctrine of weakness and no functional ability in that to really understand how the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, functions in the life of someone who's struggling. And what was going on in particular with Paul is that they were rejecting his leadership because he appeared weak to them. 
And they had no place for a leader like the Apostle Paul. And so he wrote this letter to basically debunk their thinking and transform their thinking and, and to help them understand that in the Lord, things work very differently than what they would expect. He's adjusting their, their wrong thinking. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the letter and, and, and what's involved with that. I wanted today just kind of take you on a kind of 10,000-foot overview of this, of this letter and look at some of the major points so we can understand the themes and what it's about. Uh, but before we do that, let's pray. And we'll ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for this book that's so wonderful and so needed. Lord, we need to understand these truths um, just as the Corinthians need to understand them, just as Paul and his team lived in them. We need these truths. So help us saturate ourselves in your word and be changed by it. And help me today, Lord, as I teach your word that I could teach faithfully and effectively and that we, we together could learn from you, we pray. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Is the overhead working? Um, if we could show, we're going to be moving along through here. So first, before I um, get into the, the text itself, I just kind of want to back up and look at some things. First, to introduce you to the ancient city of Corinth. Um, this is where the people who were recipients of this letter lived. Uh, so it's in uh, Achaia and that area of Greece, the southern area. Uh, you can see there Corinth. That's the uh, Aegean Sea there. You have Asia across there. So th that's where the city is. This is the city of Corinth. It's not the Greek city of Corinth. There's an ancient Greek city of Corinth that was notorious for vice, but it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C. It was abandoned for about 100 years and rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. as a Roman city. So it's more Roman than Greek. Uh, so this, it's a rebuilt city on top of the old ruins, and it's different from the ancient one. So that's important to understand. Sometimes people will talk about Corinth, and they'll be talking about the ancient Greek city, not the, the more modern one. It was situated on an isthmus about four miles across. If you could flip up to the next picture. Um, there's there's a, a map, I think we have, of, of that isthmus. So there's this area there, and, th and that's a modern picture from Google Maps. There's actually a canal through that isthmus now, but there wasn't in that day. And Corinth was situated near, near that area, and it was a key area when, in as far as trade would go when they were shipping things across the Mediterranean. They would come up on one side to one of the harbors, and they would, uh, they would get rid of their goods, or actually they could even haul the ships over that isthmus. It was quicker and safer to do that rather than going all around. So Corinth was situated in a place where there was a lot of trade as a result. And so it, it was a thriving city. It was a prosperous city in many ways because of its situation there and the trade that went on. Also, it was host to uh, the Isthmian Games, and these were like uh, rivals to the Olympic Games. They're very important games, and they were held the year before and the year after the Olympics. And so they were a major, it was kind of like the World Cup sort of thing, but every year it was there in Corinth. And so it was a, a famous city and a thriving city because of that as well. It was a new city, and as a new city, it had no established nobility. It didn't have that sort of structure that would often come in ancient cities in the those days where the nobility kind of oversaw the area, and they held much of the capital of the area, held much of the resources of the area. And so there was often structure and so forth that went with this. This was a, a boon town sort of city. It was a new city. It was growing, and it was full of people that were basically uh, uh, nouveau riche people. They were new rich, newly rich people, 
uh, that, that didn't come from nobility, and, and they got there through hard work, and they were kind of self-made people. So that was kind of the atmosphere of the city. It was a land of opportunity in their day, and people were, uh, as a result, they were individualistic, scrambling to make their fortunes. Um, alongside the nouveau riche as well were poor. About one-third of the population were uh, slaves in, that, in those days. And so they're all right alongside each other. You had this diversity in their economic status, but, but their social status originally would have been very similar. Uh, but everyone's scrambling to make it. There's various ethnic groups. Um, they all live under a, a uh, culture that's diverse. Uh, it's, a, it's a pluralistic culture. And the Roman culture was pluralistic. It was okay, you could worship anything as long as you, as long as you submitted to the state. And how they did that was through a a nominal emperor worship that went on. So you could believe what you want. So there was all sorts of beliefs. It was pluralistic in that sense. But they all had in common submission to the state. Uh, they had views um, that were different than the Bible. They had a lot of social world was built around um, the different gods and goddesses and the different worldly pursuits. So a lot of your social world was built around these clubs. Um, and they had twisted views of the human body and natural appetites and a very high regard for appearance and ability. That was the culture of Corinth. As I'm describing that, you may be thinking, you know, I, I know a culture that's becoming more and more like that. And that's our culture. Corinth's culture and ours is, is, has been similar for a long time and even more so. We have no established nobility, so it's a scramble to make your fortune. We can be very individualistic. Um, we value appearance and ability. Um, we increasingly have twisted views of, of, of humanity and the human body and our natural appetites. We form social circles around our various pursuits. And so this, this letter, 2 Corinthians, along with 1 Corinthians, is incredibly relevant to us. And so the, the particular struggles they have are really our struggles, and so we can learn a lot. Now this is 2 Corinthians, right? Which means it's the second of the Corinthian letters that we have, but there actually were four letters that Paul wrote. Um, and what we call 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians, and if you counted all his letters that he wrote that we know of. Um, there was an earlier letter that we call 1 Corinthians was, that was actually the second of his letters. And so we know that, by the way, you can look in 1 Corinthians and you can look in 2 Corinthians, and there are references to previous letters. So each one refers to a previous letter that's not the one in Scripture. So we know there are four altogether. So there's a previous letter that we have in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, which is a wonderful book. We're not going through it, uh, but it has relevance to 2 Corinthians. We went through this book as a church about 10, 15 years ago now, um, and it, it was, a, I think, a very helpful experience to go through that, through that book and learn about the various problems that the Corinthians faced. And so they were, that culture was interacting with the gospel, and they struggled on a, on a number of different issues. And so in 1 Corinthians, what Paul does is he goes after all those different issues. And he brings the truth of Christ, crucified and risen, and the new life in Christ, to bear on all the issues. And so it's a wonderful book to watch how, uh, how Paul walks out with the Corinthians, how to live a gospel-centered life in your culture. Um, so it's a great letter for that. And I just recommend at least once a year, sit down and read through that whole letter or make it part of your devotionals. Um, really helpful because it teaches us what, is, what does it look like when the gospel and the new life in Christ comes to bear on us as we live in our culture and deal with these issues. 
so 2 Corinthians, though, is very different than 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians has tons of issues. There's a, about 10 different issues or so that Paul addresses and walks through, and they're all relevant issues. I just don't have time to go into them all. They're all very relevant to us. Um, you know, us things about you know how we align ourselves. Hero, uh, do we follow heroes? How we how we um, interact as a community or value of the church? Uh, roles of men and women. There's all sorts of things there that are incredibly relevant and helpful. Second Corinthians is different. It reads more like Paul's personal journal. Uh, it's more of a biography. It's more like Paul reflecting on how he understands himself in the Lord. And that's because Paul wants to help the Corinthians understand how they ought to think of Paul as the apostle, but he's not just about that. He's wanting them to, to think about themselves the right way. And so it's very, very biographical, very personal, and really focuses pretty much around that issue. What does it look like? What does mature Christianity look like in regards to weakness, and the strength of God. That's, that's what it's centrally about. There are a couple other issues that he addresses. But that's what it's like. It's very different than 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and it has, in this uniqueness, I think, something important to, to offer up us. Um, it brings to us some key themes, and that's what I want to talk about now, is the, the key themes. So some of the background on Corinth, just understanding what was going on. Uh, Paul had been interacting with his church for a while in the year 51 A.D. or, or so. Uh, he went there, he spent 18 months, and God did some powerful things. The, the good news of Christ, crucified, paying for our sins, rising again for victorious new life through faith in him. He proclaimed this truth, it transformed lives, it formed a church, and it was a, a sizable church. Uh, and then he had to leave, he went to Jerusalem, and then he went to Ephesus on his way back some years later, like four years later or so. And then God did a powerful work in Ephesus, you can read about that in the book of Acts, and you can read about the church in Ephesus and Ephesians and elsewhere, uh, did a powerful work there. Probably tens of thousands of people came to Christ, probably the most significant numerically wise work in his life. And he stayed at Ephesus for a while, but while he was there, he was hearing about all these troubles over in Corinth. And so he did multiple visits, and he wrote these different letters to Corinth to help them while he was in Ephesus. So that's some of the background. And then let's talk about the themes. What does he talk about here in this book? Well, as I've said, the main theme is that the power and goodness of God is shown through our weakness. That's the main theme here, that the power and goodness and, and really the gospel of God uh, in Christ, which is the vehicle and the focal point for his power and goodness, is shown through our weakness. Boy, that's a key point we need to hear. And Paul starts right away in this book talking about it. It's interesting in the first part of the book, in chapter 1, he basically introduces himself, and then right away says this, and we have these verses to show, 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is Paul's introduction to this letter. Isn't that interesting? Right off the bat, I mean, he speaks, he introduces himself, he speaks about God being the comfort of, the God of all comforts and Father of mercies and so forth. And then he goes right into here saying, basically, we were so affected by the problems we had in Asia that we basically felt like we had a nervous breakdown and wanted to die. That's how Paul's introducing himself to the Corinthians in this letter. Here I am, vulnerable, honest, weak, and humble, 
before you. This is who I am. Can you imagine? I mean, though that sort of letter and that sort of approach can get you fired in places, right? Here's my introduction of who I am. I'm a mess. I so despaired that I wanted to die. That's how he introduces himself. But notice what he does. This is to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul is unafraid to be vulnerable and honest because he's living in dependence on the Lord and modeling that his weakness, that God might be shown as his strength. So he says the despair and what he was experiencing, what he felt, he felt the sentence of death. And we all, I think, feel that at one point or another. And some of us live every day feeling the sentence of death. He felt the sentence of death and it had the effect on, on him of making him not rely on himself and to stop playing the stupid game of pretending and instead to put his hope in God who raises dead people. That's what Paul says right off the bat. This is who I am. I struggle like this, yet my God raises the dead. And these struggles teach me to put my hope, my faith in the one who raises the dead. So power and grace are made most evident and compelling in the context of weakness. That's a theme, a central theme here. There are sub-themes with that that all relate. First, weakness and suffering are normal. Weakness and suffering are normal. The victorious Christian life is not a life free from weakness and suffering. It's a life of weakness and suffering. That's normal. The health and wealth gospel is a heresy and a falsehood. Indeed, there is health and wealth in Jesus, but it will be realized when we go to be with him. And it is shown now, even through the true spiritual health and prosperity in the Lord, shown through now, even through weakness. And so just about every chapter in this whole book, Paul talks about weakness and suffering really quickly. Let's go, let's go through the chapters. We just saw that was chapter one, right? Chapter two. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Chapter 3, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, so we're not sufficient. Chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest also in our body. Chapter 5, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Chapter 6, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Chapter 7, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Chapter 7, chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So we're poor, he makes us rich. Verse 9, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So the contributions are for needy saints. To be needy is part of being a Christian. Chapter 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Chapter 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Chapter 12, 
for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse thir- uh, chapter 13, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Weakness and suffering are normal for the Christian life. That's a helpful truth, to understand that they're, they're a part of our lives, to live in weakness in this world, in this body right now. And we don't have to think that the standard, some have, we don't want to live by some impossible standard of you know, always having huge faith and big smiles on our face and, and just a positive assurance that it is all good and I am strong and well. It's just We have this impossible standard that operates in our lives. And this book debunks that and replaces it with truth that when we are weak, then he is strong through our lives. Now in this book, the, the grace of God comes to us in Christ. So the grace of God in Christ is all we need in our weakness. That God is for us and gives his grace to us in our weakness. He meets us in our weakness. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul starts out with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction." so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you could keep these verses up as we go through, so they're all there on the overhead. Um, next in chapter, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So we, we bring the fragrance of Christ in our weakness as we depend on the Lord. Uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, it goes on. In chapter 4, verse 7, For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Um, later on, for we are always be- being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul goes on and on just to, to show that it's in weakness as we depend on him that Jesus shows the, the wonder of the gospel and the grace of God. We are dependent. We need to hear these truths. So Paul says in chapter 12, he says, To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about it that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse, chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Are we able to put these up? Okay. Okay. Somebody forgot to put them in, which is me, I guess. Um, so just, I'll try to lead you along through it. Uh, sorry, guys. Uh, so, th- so this point, we see this theme of that it's the grace of God in our weakness is important. And we need to hear that. This should bring comfort to us, and it should make the good news of Christ and the unquenchable love and grace of God so much more precious to us. When we recognize that we're weak and grace comes to us in our weakness, it changes how we look at grace. It's kind of like, somebody who 
isn't thirsty, if you offer them a drink of cold water, it's like, well, that's nice, but I'm okay. I'm all set, right? But someone who's thirsty, who knows they're thirsty and, and recognizes that, when you bring a cup of cold water, you're like, oh, you ever been in that place? Like, that's like, that's better than diamonds, just a cup of cold water. That's how these things work as well. When we recognize our weakness and our need, and the grace of God comes to us in Jesus that, that Christ himself would die for our sins and rise again for new life in him, and that I can have him in my struggles, that's that cold glass of water, and that's more precious to us. That's how this functions. Of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ is important in all this and central because it is through Christ himself through his death and resurrection and all that he brings, that, that we experience these things. And so you're going to see as we go through 2 Corinthians, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus, repeated over and over again. And so chapter after chapter after chapter, the focus is on Christ and what comes with him. So chapter 1 speaks of how all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. Chapter 3, he's going to say that, that uh, as we come to Christ, the veil gets lifted and we see God as he really is. Chapter 4, he's going to say, we, we don't proclaim ourselves as leaders, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Chapter 5, he's going to talk about what Christ has done. And he says, all this is from God. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see that again. Chapter after chapter, Paul is going to highlight the good news of Christ and how it relates to all this, it's, it's the, the gospel of Christ, Christ himself, God in the flesh, dying on the cross, suffering himself, living in weakness himself, but in that weakness, bringing the greatest strength ever, our salvation, our forgiveness, and ultimately the right to rule and to redeem all of creation, comes to us through the gospel and through simple faith of turning from sin and turning to him. And, and it's through Christ that we have this grace, and we are counted as sons and daughters, and we have a God who is indeed the, the God of all comfort, the God of mercy, who meets us in our weakness. It's through Christ and what Christ has done. He gave himself for us. He's loved us this way, and now his love compels us to tell others. It compels us to live in him, to find our strength in him, and in our weakness to find comfort. So a central theme in this is the is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In all this as well, Paul makes it clear that leaders and mature Christians, leaders are verified by their faithfulness to Christ and their fruitfulness, not by how strong their leadership gift is, as good as that might be, not how eloquently they speak, not how they appear, but as they, as weak people, depend on Christ how he gives them grace to be faithful, to represent Christ, and how he gives them grace to be fruitful. That's how they're verified. And so Paul takes time throughout this letter to speak of this over and over again. You'll hear him say lots of things about this. He's 
speaks about integrity, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statements of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And later on in verse 5 of that chapter, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. We don't want you to, to be attracted to us. We don't want you to be in the church because of ourselves. We don't proclaim ourselves. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Later on, he says, I will gladly, most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, do I, will you love me less? So Paul's understanding of his own ministry is that, uh, that in his weakness, he finds his strength in Christ and his ministry and his leadership is verified by his faithfulness to Christ by grace and his truthfulness. And how we need to hear that. Guys, there are models of leadership that have a big influence on us as we think about what leaders ought to be. We love the white knight leader. We love you know, the, the leader who comes swooping in to save the day. You know, the singular leader on the white horse with the, the great sword, right? Swinging the sword and, and, and leading us on to victory. And really, apart from Jesus, that leader doesn't exist. And yet we hold this very high opinion of this, really, what is a fictitious reality. I recently read a book by uh, Archie Brown called The Myth of the Strong Leader. And Archie Brown is a, is a professor and, and political leader in Britain. And it's called The Myth of the Strong Leader. And what he does is he goes through and looks at the historic leaders and basically asks him the question, does such a thing exist, this strong, charismatic, central leader? And he does two things. He says yes and no. Most leaders who are successful are not these strong central leaders. They're leaders that are very good at working together, creating coalitions, uh, compelling people by example, and so forth, but doing it together. The successful ones over the long haul uh, are not these strong central leaders. They're leaders who work and know, that, know their strengths and weaknesses, and they put people around them to cover their weaknesses to work together. But there are some strong central leaders, charismatic leaders, and by and large, they all end up being tyrants. So historically, when you look at those strong central leaders, they end up being tyrants, and they hurt more than help. There's a wonderful book in, in just looking at political history. Well, we don't have to look at political history. We've got this book right here, right? And it says, this is what a leader looks like. He delights in his weakness, for when he's weak, he's strong. He depends on Christ for, for when he does that, Christ works in him and through him to present a model of mature Christianity that is strong in weakness and gives grace to lead and to proclaim truth and to be fruitful. So those are the key themes in this book. One other key theme that fits along these other key themes is the, the, that the gospel of grace creates generosity. So two chapters in this book, 8 and 9, speak at length about this. Part of the reason in the context is Paul's working with them to, for collection, and, and he wants to follow through to that. But he also is saying, basically, when we understand this grace in our weakness, it frees us up to be generous and to help others who are weak as well. Well, I hope that helps us as we prepare, um, whether you're taking notes on, your, on paper or in your book. Um, I just want you to hear that and be prepared for this series of going through this. We're going to take some time, and I think it's going to take about a year, actually, with some breaks here and there to go through it. And I want to kind of do a little Q&A right now, and I want to start that by asking you the question, how do you need this book? Or how does one like you 
need this book? How would this book help us in our culture as believers? Understanding these two themes, understanding that central theme that the power and goodness of God through the gospel of Christ, is shown most profoundly through our weakness. Given that, how do you think this could affect us, could affect others? So let's go through a little time of Q&A and interaction on that. All right? And, um, and by the way, uh, I don't want you to be embarrassed because if you have a question someone else does, and, and part of how we learn is learning together. I know this is like a little different, but this is well, there's not that many people here in this room, and and you know mostly everybody here. They're your friends and your church family. So you can ask. And uh, so I just want to take some time to interact. And, and again, if you don't have any questions, I'm going to ask these.